After every election, there's a great rush to declare what the real story is. More than ever, it seems that everyone wants to explain why this election proves they were right all along. We should have said, quite simply, that any deal that comes out of this government should be put to a confirmatory referendum and that Remain should be on the ballot paper. A message that comes to us from this is, is yet again, we have to get on and deliver Brexit. Depending on who you listen to, the results of the European elections on Sunday night prove that voters want politicians to get on with Brexit or that the strength of the Remain vote shows they want to stop it. Or perhaps, to borrow Theresa May's catchphrase, that nothing has changed. Britain remains polarised. What we're facing from Britain's point of view is the appalling prospects of paralysis into an uncharted future. And in the middle of all this chatter, it can be easy to forget that these were European elections with repercussions across the continent. So, a good night for the Greens. It is a good night. It is a good night. Excellent night. Uh... In France, Marine Le Pen again beat the French president's party. The traditional party families will not play the same role in the future as they have done in the recent years. You're listening to Polarize, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the forces driving us further apart and what we can do about them. I'm Matthew Taylor. This week, what can we learn from the aftermath of the European elections? Ian Leslie is away this week, so I'm joined instead by Marie Leconte, a French political journalist living in London. Marie's first book, Haven't You Heard? A Guide to Westminster Gossip, will be published in September. Welcome, Marie. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me. Later in this episode, we're going to talk about what the European elections mean for British politics. I'll be talking to the journalist Paul Mason, who's been controversial since those elections in the things he said about Jeremy Corbyn. But I talked to him about the threats of fascism and fatalism. And I want to talk to Marie about how the politics of Europe, and especially France, are changing. But first, in previous episodes, we've looked at how internet culture poisoned politics with the US academic Whitney Phillips... It is so easy to close out any conversation you don't want to hear, reducing an entire human life down to a singular gift. We've also talked about the role of anger in our politics with Claire Fox, who is now, of course, a Brexit Party MEP. There's nothing worse in terms of making me furious than having my motives impugned. So it only seems right that in our full disclosure segment this week, we should talk about what it's like to be in the eye of a Twitter storm. Given that you are, Marie, the instigator of what became known as Bin Raccoon Gate. So <laughs> um, there may be just a couple of people who don't know what I'm talking about. So could you explain what Bin Raccoon Gate was? Oh, yes, no, absolutely. Um, I was watching the documentary uh, called Bring the House Down on Netflix, which is kind of following uh, four women trying to become trying to run for Congress in the US, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
Um, and basically there was just, you know, and obviously she's this kind of like very on top of being very accomplished and clearly very, very bright and successful. She is also very well put together, very glamorous, very sort of like beautiful woman. And there's a bit in the documentary that um, cuts to her boyfriend who was wearing, you know, sort of like a T-shirt, several sizes too big and a beard that kind of looked like it might have crumbs in it and so on. And so I, I kind of just took a screen grab and decided to tweet it um, and call him a bin raccoon. Marie LeConte, uh, who's a journalist, tweeted this and later deleted. Apologies for the blatantly mean tweet, but this is what AOC's boyfriend looks like. Incredible scenes truly representing all the ambitious and stunning millennial women shackled to boyfriends who look like bin raccoons out there. Okay. So can, so can you understand? Is that your phrase, by the way? Being so, Did you make that up? So I think it's one of those, actually, as, as a slight side note, where I thought it was a phrase, but apparently it's not. And I think that is quite frequent. Oh, so so like, English actually, is my second language. So it could and go so, into the, if it goes into the dictionary, it'll be yours forever. Yes, no, I know, which is very odd. Because again, I genuinely thought that was a phrase that existed. Well, congratulations um, on that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, um, but yes, yeah, so I think British Twitter kind of, you know, was a bit controversial. Some people said it was a bit mean, but that was that kind of died down. And then I'm not sure what happened. So I went boxing, because I, as I do every week. And I sort of, you know, so put my phone down for about an hour um, and came back. And as far as I could tell, the entire United States of America were mad at me and telling me why. So that was slightly overwhelming and that kind of lasted for uh, nearly three days. Right. But like, girl, you could have said that to your homegirl. Yes. Right. That did not need to go on your work account on the internet. That was mean. You knew it was mean. You said it was mean. Yes. I think if one of your viewers calls me a bin raccoon, I'm gonna stew about it for a month and a half. <laughs> All right, okay. forget it. It's fine, French journalist. Call whoever you want a bin raccoon. You're good. Until Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez herself posted a story on Instagram of her boyfriend getting his beard uh, trimmed and his hair cut, which I feel kind of proved that I was right uh, to call him a bin raccoon. Look at my cute you look good, Wayne. Give me the profile. My, give me the profile. Look at my cute little bin raccoon. Ooh, look at that shape up. <laughs> so there's a famous, another famous viral tweet which seems kind of apt to this and that, and that tweet reads each day on Twitter there is one main character the goal is never to be that person but you were that person I absolutely was and I actually thought of that tweet uh, while it was happening it was very obvious to me that I'd become the protagonist of Twitter which is the you know not the thing you want and it, and it is actually it's it was a weirdly interesting experience um it was very stressful but that reaction did it serve uh, you right <laughs> I guess. No, but I think that the interesting thing is that you can, you see it happening, basically. There's a point at which the machine kind of starts working and there's nothing you can do. So I, after a while, deleted the tweet uh, because I was getting really annoyed at the number of notifications I was getting, but then posted a quick thing afterwards saying, to be clear, I stand by the, you know, I stand by my joke. Um, it's just I wanted to leave the tweet to kind of calm it down. And it does not, you know, once Twitter has decided, again, you're the protagonist, there's nothing you can do because people had taken screen grabs of it and reposting them, uh -huh. etc. So there is that feeling of complete sort of like helplessness when you see the 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 avalanche uh, and then you're just stuck in it and there's nothing you can do about so, it. So the reason I'm saying, and, and it seems very rude because we've only just met, the reason I'm saying does it did it, did it serve you right is in a sense, if you use a phrase like that, if you put it out there... 
you're wanting to draw attention to what you've said. So the fact that it draws an unbelievable amount of attention, is that, is that, do you think you were treated unreasonably, I guess is the point I want to, I want to ask. Um, yeah, well, I think one of the interesting angles on this is, I mean, it's the general question of tone first, you know, as a wider point where I think quite a lot of Americans thought, you know, that my tone was really rude, um, which I think that British people, as far as I could tell, you know, had no complaints about that. But I think more broadly, um, and I think that's a much wider problem on the internet. And, and you know, anyone who knows me or follows me on Twitter will know that's obviously a joke because I think quite a lot of people objected to the phrase shackled to, which obviously <laughs> I would never use, you know, in a sort of serious way. But obviously if you take that tweet out of context without knowing who I am, um, it's probably going to sound a lot more aggressive than it was. So, I mean, I think you're a journalist, yeah? And, and, uh, and I have... It must have been pretty difficult being in the kind of eye of that storm and people misinterpreting it and thinking you were being mean when you were just trying to be humorous or you were being humorous. But I guess to put the other perspective, um, and actually by coincidence, I was on Twitter last night sagging off a journalist because there was a piece in The Telegraph which was critical of Rory Stewart and his proposal for a citizens' assembly, and it was written by somebody who clearly had absolutely no idea what deliberative democracy was, hadn't done any research on deliberative democracy. Mm. So I, you know, I, I'm I, actually very rare for me to be kind of harumphy, but I was, and I kind of said, look, this is great. This is an article about deliberative democracy by somebody who's done no research and knows nothing at all about it. And then I did another tweet saying, given that you can be commissioned to write something for the Telegraph about subjects you know nothing about, I'm going to submit an article about nuclear fusion <laughs> and the phenomenology of the Vikings. Uh, now, the, the thing is, what, what is good in a way is I could do that because I am old enough to remember that when journalists got things wrong or when they were mean, mm. if you were lucky and you were willing to kind of ring up right to harass the kind of editor for about three weeks... You, and you had an open and shut case, you might get an apology on page 14 of the newspaper. There was no comeback at all. Mm. So whilst I have every sympathy for what happened to you, Marie, in a way, isn't it good now that if you're a journalist and you go out there, the world can get back at you? Uh, yes and no. It's a topic I find quite fascinating. So, And I, I sort of have sympathy for all sides of the argument, which is not very helpful. Um, but I, I, I'm busy slightly annoyed by everyone is what I mean, actually. Because on the one side, you know, I do not buy the whole, you know, kind of especially quite high-profile journalist saying, you know, it's just abuse this day, we just get abuse and we can't live in these conditions, etc. When it's like, well, actually, you know, you do choose to tweet, as you said, you know, you choose to kind of put yourself out there. And But on the other hand, you know, you do have a side kind of, you know, like you saying, but actually, you know, there is a line between abuse and criticism and surely it's good that, you know, we can send criticism to uh, to media, pro like media figures, um, and actually those media figures tend to fudge a bit and kind of call what is criticism abuse so they, you know, so they can get away with it without responding. I kind of fall somewhere in the middle. So having, you know, obviously like the Bin Raccoon thing was uh, a bit of an outlier, but I do, I do get my fair share of kind of stuff um, online uh, as, as a woman with opinions. And it is kind of true, I think, that if you do reach a certain number of followers on Twitter or another platform, you do get quite a constant stream of abuse. And the problem is, and I think that's, you know, and then that's a perfectly human reaction. After a while, you kind of tune it out. So I don't think that people are necessarily being disingenuous when they put together the kind of abuse and the criticism. It's just that after a while, if you receive enough of those tweets, they kind of merge into you on the near head as well. My worry is that basically online abuse is also cheapening online criticism because if you get enough of both, um, it's really, really hard for you to actually make the difference between the two because it is actually quite a stressful experience um, to receive a lot of abuse. 
Now, we're going to move on, as promised, uh, to talk about what happened in those European elections um, from bin raccoons to Brexit. Um, Marie, this is a hard question, but uh, what do you think those European elections meant for British politics? We've had lots of different interpretations. What's yours? Uh, I would say, I think actually on Brexit, not uh, not much has changed. I don't want to say nothing has changed. Too many people have said it. Um, and, we, and I think, yeah, we knew that lots of the population really, really like Brexit and a lot of the population really, really don't like Brexit. That's nothing new. I think it does show the UK has become more polarised, I think. So, you know, clearly there were lots of people voting simply along their view on Brexit, uh, not, you know, their policy preferences, etc. But, you know, obviously that might be the case. That it was because it was European elections specifically. Apart from that, I think the interesting narratives have been the green surge. The green surge, but especially in the context of, I think that, you know, every time, uh, so not talking about the Brexit party per se, but, you know, back in the days of UKIP, there was always the kind of, oh, UKIP surge, UKIP surge, etc. And, you know, every election it was predicted. Sometimes it happened, sometimes it did not. And actually the green surge, no one really, really saw it coming. And an interesting thing about that as well, so I was kind of uh, looking at the data this morning, is that it was not just about Brexit. So I think, you know, the narrative already seems to be, oh, well, you know, people who voted for the Greens are basically just Labour voters who, you know, really, really care about Brexit and want a second referendum and no Brexit at all. But actually, if you look at the reasons why people voted Green and where they voted Green, A, it was not just in this sort of like very Remain supporting areas. And B, I think their main reason to vote for the Greens was for their policies on stuff that is not Brexit. So there's clearly that an actual Green search happening, which I think is really interesting. Uh, Northern Ireland as well, the fact that so I think 57% uh, is the figure, but at least definitely over 50% uh, of people voted for pro-Remain parties in Northern Ireland. The EU will be a lot more interested in that yeah. going forward than to like however, however many seats the Brexit party has got. Um, also in Northern Ireland, the Alliance got a seat, which I thought was really, if you think it's important to try to have politics that isn't entirely separated along kind of... You, the traditional lines. Uh, mm. That was really interesting. I mean, w- one of the things about the election, it seemed to me, Marie, was that was, you know, Labour and the Conservatives did appallingly badly. I mean, yes, the Liberal Democrats had a better night. But across Europe, if we now stand back and look at across Europe, the death of the or the virtual death of parties that have been there for decades is a really big and interesting phenomenon. And it was carried on again in the European election. So you look at parties like the SPD, which is, just seems to be a kind of group of old blokes now, you know, <laughs> sitting around in some kind of mm. pub somewhere. You know, the Labour Party in Scotland, I mean, you know, virtually ceased to exist. Mm. Um, what's your kind of interpretation as to the, the decline of these kind of major centre-right, centre-left parties? Is it is it that they are the victims of what's going on in the modern world, or are they some ways responsible for what has happened to them? There's clearly, you know, that the parties have been eating themselves um, up from, like, you know, internally for so long and have not been offering anything, you know, any sort of like exciting platform or exciting people, mm. exciting leadership, a vision for the country. And I think, you know, obviously in France as well, looking back at the 2017 election and then again now, the Républicain and the Parti Socialiste, like, no one, you know, there's no, they're not offering anything really. There's no interesting forward-looking thinking being done by them and so obviously and I think there's is that because a compl- there's a complacency as well I think of you know this kind of assumption that people will keep on voting for you and actually they won't and you know especially I think in the era of kind of the internet and social media it is probably slightly easier at least for new parties to kind of launch themselves it is part of it that the art of winning elections and winning votes is so completely different to the art of government 
and that these are parties that that think of themselves as putative governments and and they have the kind of internal politics of people who think that they should be in power and actually you know what people respond to is not complex policy platforms and you know technical credibility or whatever they respond to more emotional appeals to key principles that that people might have so this kind of separation of the skills of politics and the skills of government seems to me to be to be kind of you know quite problematic really because in a sense politics should be about both these things you know, I, I agree, but um, and, and I think you know we kind of saw that very, very clearly. Like that's really the starker example with Brexit and the two main parties. Well, obviously, if you are the Brexit party or the Lib Dems or the Greens, etc., you can just pick a side, and that's fine. You know, and kind of like try to please everyone with the amount of MPs and supporters and activists and etc. and grandees both Labour and the Tories have, it would be impossible for them to just have a very, very sort of like clear and decisive and quite sort of like again that polarized. Uh, beyond Brexit, because that, that that's not how it can possibly mm. work. So I think there's that as well, where as a smaller party, you can certainly be more nimble. And it's interesting, the Liberal Democrats, isn't it? Because in a way, the Liberal Democrat revival is because people have forgotten about them being a government. You know, it was, <laughs> you know, the Liberal Democrats always used to do pretty well in European elections and local elections because they were an opportunity for you to vote against other parties, really. They were a kind of safe haven for people who didn't want to vote for the parties that tended to win elections. And now they've kind of returned to that... They return to that position. The question, of course, is what happens when these more populist parties, boutique parties, actually get into power? And I think there, again, you talked about the Greens. I think the Greens are interesting because certainly what we've seen in Germany is the Greens have managed to maintain their support even though they run quite a few or they are involved in quite a few lender governments. You know, mm. So... It, 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 it's interesting, this question of how it is these insurgent movements and parties manage to sustain themselves when they get into office. Because the lazy assumption was, well, it's all for ultimate elections, but you won't sustain it. But whether it's Orban or Trump on the populist right or whether it's the Greens in Germany, uh, I think these newer movements and newer parties are learning. And one of the things I think they're learning is that you don't stop campaigning in power, mm. is that you you continue to try to maintain... Again, in Scotland... One of the things about the SNP in Scotland, they had a reasonably good night, is that although they've been running the country for a decade or, or more, they still have a feel of being slightly insurgent. Oh, you yeah, know, completely. Um, so that's that's the trick. Corbyn's conundrum: leave or remain. We don't back a rerun of 2016. That happened. That's gone. What I do say is that um, if Parliament comes to an agreement, then it's reasonable that if Parliament wishes it, there should be a public vote on it. But that is some way off. Of course, we're going to hear in a moment from Paul Mason. It's interesting. Paul Mason is... Uh, he, he's not quite reached kind of bin raccoon territory, but he's, you know, he's, he's, he's getting a lot of stick right now. Because he is saying that the Labour Party has moved to the left, it's got a programme, it can kind of challenge neoliberalism, um, but the problem is, well, you see, he's not saying the problem is Jeremy Corbyn, and that's a step too far, but he's saying the problem is the people around Jeremy Corbyn, which which I think he means, but I also wonder whether it's slightly code for Jeremy Corbyn himself mm. when you can't actually say Jeremy Corbyn. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting, that dynamic in the Labour Party, it seems to me. I mean, I did a, I did a thing for Channel 4 a couple of weeks ago, and I said on it, 
you know, it seems to me there is a consensus towards a more a left a more left wing platform than the Labour Party. But the problem is Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him. And I thought the response I'd get to that from kind of Blair, being a Blairite in my background was kind of critiquing me for the fact that I seemed to be reasonably positive about the Labour Party moving to the left. Actually, that wasn't the response I got at all. The response <laughs> I got was from kind of Corbynites who said, how dare you criticise uh, the leader? So it's going to be interesting to see how this Labour Party thing plays out, mm. actually. But also, isn't it, I swear I remember... At around the same time of Miliband's leadership for the Labour Party, the kind of, you know, well, Miliband's fine, but it's the people around him who are the problem in sort of like circa 2014. So I think that that's also a thing that always comes back around the sort of, you know, it's not that, especially weirdly, I think, with Labour. Actually, you know, that being said, we had it with Theresa May as well. Like it's it's kind of one of those stories that every few years, you know, kind of ticks along and it's that, well, actually, you know, there are x y and z problems but it's it's not quite the leader it's just the people around them which you know and i'm not never quite sure if it's true or not i think in some cases it is in some cases it's not but in any case surely you know any leader that can be entirely swayed by um their advisors probably is not a very good leader um well we'll come back to a couple of those themes in a moment but let's first of all have a slight shift of gear and um hear from paul mason he came to the rsa to talk about his book clear bright future. Now, not everyone will see things uh, the way that Paul uh, does. But what was interesting to me was that um, his views were very much preoccupied by the thought that the far right is on the rise and and still uh, on the rise. One of the things that was interesting in the book is is that a lot of the books I read around the kind of crisis of liberal democracy or Trump or Brexit or whatever try very hard to be sympathetic to the people who voted for Trump. They try to, very hard to be sympathetic to the people who will vote Brexit today. And people will vote Brexit for various reasons. Mm. I'm not lumping them all together. But those who will vote Brexit because they really think Nigel Farage is great. You're not really in the business of doing that. I mean, you're quite hostile to them. And I think see them as people who... I'm kind of interested. Do you see them as people who, who's, who re- realise their interests are being threatened and therefore fighting back? Do you see them as people who are suffering false consciousness? What... You know, what is your description of those people who are going to vote Brexit today? Well, first of all, to, to not lump them all together, and certainly not to try to, to unnecessarily otherize them. But it is a culture war, and in a culture war, of course, what you aim to, like all wars, you aim to dis- disorganize the opposition. So, yes, I want to give certain things to people who might vote for the Brexit party or the conservative ultra Brexiteers in order to prevent them from becoming fascists. And, and ultimately, what's the end of the journey? It's Utoya in Norway. It's what happened in Christchurch. It's you know, the same thought architecture, unfortunately, is, is becoming more and more shared between quite mainstream right-wing thought and the guys who write the manifestos and then kill people. Now, what I want to, to try and bring back as many of those people as possible towards is the idea of the institutions, and they're not very left-wing institutions. Bourgeois democracy, universal human rights, and the rule of law. Many leftists have kind of criticised this for saying, what do you mean, the rule of law? What do you mean, the universal declaration with all its Western bullshit? Yes, for me, because that's the important thing right now in history to defend. You know, you remember the Jules Rimet trophy, what was it called, the, um, the, the World Cup? If you won it three times, you kept it. Brazil won it three times, and they kept the trophy. If we defeat fascism twice in 100 years, we'll be able to keep democracy because we've got a very highly educated 
in the West anyway, in the developed world, uh, population. And I think we do, there are groans for, for, for thinking, if we defeat it again, we can actually move to a higher level in which it, it, it's much harder for it to come back. One of the things that Paul talked about at our event and indeed writes about in Clear Bright Future is is fatalism. He sees a big part of what's going wrong as the kind of the encouragement of a fatalistic view about humanity. He sees fatalism also as being part of what drives people towards the politics uh, of the far right. We're very grateful you stayed behind for uh, just a few minutes to, to talk to us for material we will use in our, our series Polarise. So that leads me to my first question, which is, one of the things I loved about the book, and it's been a theme for us in, in Polarised, has been to try to, to link the big political, social, economic arguments to a deeper crisis in an almost like an existential crisis, you might say. That In a sense, we don't know how to live. Mm. People do not know how to mm. live, how to make their lives work in a, in a, yep. in a quite a deep not, there are all sorts of specific things, yep. not even enough money and credit and all that, but there's a deeper how do I live in this world going on and, and you talk about that in the book well look I, I think the neoliberalism eviscerated the 360 degree self of many people it, it reduced them to two dimensionality you know Marcuse writes of one dimensional man but the real loss of a dimension I think wasn't in the commercial the consumerist 60s it was in at the, at the point where we all started to become economic calculators of asset worth um, the, the, the mores of financial life percolated through to us and we, we reduced ourselves to sort of assets human capital you could say that in turn leaves us disarmed I argue in the book against both the anti-humanism of the far right and the implicit anti-humanism of the technological control industry mm. um, which you know Google's ethics board just blew up right? Google just had to sack its entire ethics board because they suddenly realised that, that if you're what you need is a moral philosophy, not a set of sort of bullet points derived from previous ethical systems. If you want to design an artificial intelligence, you need to give it a theory of human beings, and they realise they hadn't got one. Now, the threats are as diverse as a new biological hierarchism, which says men are better than women, whites better than blacks, and a new technological hierarchism that's, that looks at human beings and says, eventually, in the middle of the, of the century, I think a, a machine will ask a human being, look, mate... I've rigged the last 20 elections in this country. On what basis do you claim the right to vote? At full stop. Mm. This is no longer pure sci-fi dystopia. I think we see the beginnings of it in the attitude of these hugely powerful uh, captains of the tech industry to human beings themselves. They're just, they're users. You know, they're users. They're, they're not even clients. They're not even customers. They are users as a very weird connotation for me obviously of drug use but also of, of you use what i allow you to use and while i use you in a way so yeah for me the humanism part is a defense against both the political and the technological threats we face if we had enough time i would love to have a conversation with you just about fatalism yep i think fatalism is an inherent and important part of the human condition and you talk about religion a bit in your book. And I think that uh, religion helped us with 
fatalism because on the one hand religion says fatalism is okay it's all right to feel fatalistic that's mm. fine you mm. don't need to panic with it capitalism doesn't really want you to feel an existential fatalism i mean you might argue that there is a kind of fatalism implicit in in the kind of in neoliberal ideology and also religion says to you and you know it's okay to be fatalist about the human condition because there's something better i don't mean a kind of crude notion of heaven but there's something beyond this which makes it bearable mm. so for me we have to learn to live with and accept fatalism, and I don't know how you do that without religion. For you, fatalism is entirely a kind of negative thing. Are we talking about different things? Well, I think in a way we might be, because for me, um, if you allow yourself an element of fatalism, then from a Marxist point of view, all you're saying is men, create, men make history but, and then the but and the comma, but not in conditions of their own choosing. That second half of the sentence is the justification for fatalism. What I've observed... Especially once those with agency, that is the working class, were defeated and atomized, that their belief in agency declined. And when we go to the streets of small towns where far-right uh, and nationalist voting is strong, in, anywhere in Europe, I think you find rising fatalism. There is even some kind of Pew Attitude Survey evidence that shows fatalism is, in, is rising. But... You know, you, I think in our discussion, you asked somebody asked me what's the what's the definition of the human being. Well, one cons, one one part of the definition is it, it's it's the energy against the entropy. It's the it's the action. It's the purposive action in defiance of all the other determining forces. The human being is is able to to choose to a certain extent, limited by history, a series of actions in a way that the that the the, the 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 silverback gorilla or the dolphin is not, and for me that's what, what that is what makes us human. It's having an element of agency, and free will versus determinism for me is not a, a given concept. It's historically achieved. I think, you know, a 14th century peasant in France has less free will than uh, a, a woman outside on the strand here in London with her cell phone and her her rights and her achieved rights and her attitudes towards herself. She has more more free will and certainly more agency. So we will, for me, human history is the struggle for free will, the the possibility of free will, and the more free will we achieve, the less fatalistic I think we're going to be. When you talk about fatalism, distinguish between a kind of healthy, necessary part of the human condition, fatalism, and a kind of pessimism yeah. about human possibility, which I think is different. Yeah, I, I think for me, fatalism, yeah, is cert it's certainly the latter. It's the idea that nothing I can do will ever make me rich unless I win the X Factor or become a premiership footballer. Right, so it's about so, agency, fundamentally. Yeah, so many... Um, Teenage people you meet believe exactly this, that they will only ever be successful by accident if fate points the finger at them, almost literally through the lottery, you know, point, yeah. points. Uh, no, I don't think the generation of working-class people I grew up with had that level of fatalism. They all believed because they'd experienced rising wages and in-life social mobility in their lifetime. Mm. And the had, capacity for resistance as well. Yeah, their, their fathers and mothers had the capacity to resistance. That post-war generation, my dad's generation, were, were experiencing real rise in, 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 in agency. I mean, literally in the ability to go to foreign countries, to read books that weren't allowed to read before, to have sexual relationships that weren't slightly more free than they were before. But the, my granddad's generation, I think, almost felt, almost like, yeah, probably felt compelled by history to resist fascism. Like, I think they almost did have a fatalism. We are, we have to, it's them or us. We've got to fight them. So, 
one of the really interesting things for me as somebody emerging from the Marxist movement is the extent to which Marxism never really wanted to tell the history of the proletariat. For me, the history of my family is a, is a, is a history of move from, of, of, from helplessness to, to, to agency. It, it certainly is. And the post-war Labour government creates the ability to do that. For the, Marx, for the classic orthodox Marxist, the proletariat is just the proletariat all the way through. And, and, and if it occasionally kind of you know, puts on a teddy boy suit or a mod jacket, it's just wasting its time because it should really be the dumb agent of history. When, and, and my break from that kind of Marxism consists precisely of saying it was never the dumb agent of history. In fact, Mark, Karl Marx in, in Paris in 1842 is seeking Etienne Cabet, you know, a self-educated, you know, um, shoemaker who wants to take everybody to Illinois to set up a, a commune. These weren't dumb people. They were in, highly intelligent and self-educated people with, with incredible sense of agency. Um, and it, it's a, it, the later Marxist, the, and Marx himself, I think, lapses into it, the later theory of the proletariat as the dumb agent of history is the biggest negative legacy that people like me are struggling with. Great. Paul, thank you very much. So, Mary, coming off the back of that conversation I had with Paul, we, we talked a bit about the Greens. Uh, the, the kind of general reaction to the European elections was a sense of some relief. It wasn't broadly across Europe a kind of a massively great night for the kind of nationalist right. It was an all right night for them. Mm. If you go back 20 years, we'd have thought the results were terrifying, but g- given <laughs> what we've come to expect. Thinking about France in particular, so... Uh, the National Front won, but only by a tiny I One point bit. over, yeah, en marche. I'm kind of interested, who do you think is a kind of typical National Front voter? And what are they, what, what, what are they voting about? And is it primarily a kind of fatalistic, nostalgic, kind of we wish the world would go away and we could go back to something that used to exist? Or is there more of a kind of programme for the future? Um, Yes and no. I think they've managed to form quite an interesting um, electoral coalition. There was, I'm trying to think, I can't remember where it was, but there was a really good piece, I think, in The Atlantic of all places a few years ago on the kind of new European far right. And I think that the National Front, obviously I followed uh, their European elections campaign a bit less closely than I did with the one in 2017, but that one, you know, it was very much, it's, it's, you know, it's not UKIP, it's not the kind of, you know, whatever the French equivalent is of the kind of like Little England, etc., it's quite. It's nearly this quite open view of saying, okay, well, you know, like we, we love the beautiful sort of like French Republic. We're going to do great things together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in order to do that, you know, we need to get rid of the more illiberal people in our society. So, you know, one of the National Front things could be, uh, but you know, we're we're totally fine with gay people. But you know, who's not fine with gay people? All the Muslims here because of their religion. You know, they don't want you to be gay and be like happy and free in the Republic, etc. And actually, you know, that that message I think has worked quite well. So. If I remember correctly, in the last European elections, something incredible, I think like about a third of gay couples or something had voted for the National Front, which was really interesting. So I think it, it's not, they've been quite clever in not being entirely sort of like backwards looking. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not sure there's entirely like a typical National Front voter. Obviously, a lot of it will be about class. I think, you know, overwhelmingly the support for the National Front is what that comes from the working class and it comes from really deprived areas as well. So kind of, you know, like around the north, like there's slightly like 
ironically a bit of a crescent shaped to the National Front voting pattern. So I think it's kind of the north bits of the east where basically nothing happens and sort of like bits of the south. So and how, it, it much is, that, how, how much does that mirror the Gilets Jaunes bases of, 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 of power? That Because they're, they're, they are kind of a, a phenomenon of the periphery as well, aren't they? Um, they are. I don't think... So I think the Gilets Jaunes, the entire point was that they were kind of everywhere. Like even right. to like my hometown is not... Um, which, which is, <laughs> I, I think, the easiest and quickest way to explain uh, not is that it's basically the French Bristol um, so, you know, sort of like very wide, very middle class has always kind of, I think, been left wing, like, you know, sort of like centre left, quite wet, etc. And we had lots of gilets jaunes as well. Um, I think, you know, the entire point of the gilets jaunes was that they were absolutely everywhere. If you look beyond geography as well, just in terms of what they support, maybe the current ones, you know, now it's a much, much smaller group of people are more likely to be kind of like far-right populist, etc. But at the very beginning, at the kind of height of the Gilets Jaunes, they were completely all over the place because because there was no central movement. It was created via fa- like local Facebook groups um, and then kind of, you know, ignited all at the same time. But essentially, you know, you had some Gilets Jaunes groups which were far left, others far right, others all over the place, others, you know, just apolitical entirely. Like the foreign perspective does seem to be that it was overwhelmingly kind of like populist far-right people protesting. But actually, when you look at the proper reporting in the French media, a lot of them were just all over the political spectrum, really. Like not not quite, you know, there were a few centrists there. But but generally, yeah, like apolitical far-left, far-right, etc. Like it was kind of everyone. So just to finish with, I'm kind of interested as to where we think you and I this is is going to go, going to go next so it's really hard to see and there are big differences from country to country and and even if you only use a, ra- a phrase like you know f- the far right the far right is very different you know brexit is different from the national front and uh, etc I, I guess the only kind of way i can try to put this together is is that in the end i, I think that uh, despite the relative success of Orban and Trump and Erdogan in, uh, in in Turkey, I still think ultimately governments have got to be kind of rational and they've got to be competent and they've probably got to try to appeal to most people in the country. But maybe what it is now is that in the old days, what you did was you you, you would have a party that would be in the centre and would win votes in the centre and say that's because, and th- that's because we will govern from the centre. Now, in a sense, what happens is a kind of seesaw politics, which is that there's nobody actually sitting in the centre. There's people, the parties are sitting at, at the extremes. But yet, in the end, what somehow emerges from that has to be a government that can actually run the country, that, that you know, you, you can't run the country on the basis of the kind of single issue or anger or nostalgia of tribalism, which seems to be winning votes. So kind of government stumbles on but in a politics that is polarised. it's. I would actually question your premise, I think. Um, Good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but I think, you know, there's certainly, especially in the UK, and to an extent in France, been a few decades of, you know, mostly kind of, you know, centre-left governments and then centre-right and then back again, etc. Yeah. But that was not always the case. You know, when you look back, obviously Thatcher being the very, very obvious example, or even, you know, the kind of post-war Labour governments, etc. Like that, it was not always the case that government switch, you know, from a sort of like gentle centre-left to a gentle centre-right. Um, it was, I think, politics did used to be more polarised. And I think, you know, France is exactly the same. We've had some very left-wing presidents. We've had some like really reasonably so like right-wing governments as well. So I think it, it, it might just be that shift again. So perhaps it is the case that actually the blip was the kind of, you know, soft centre being shifted around every four or five years. And now we're just back to our normal state of there's the left and the right. 
Yeah, may, may, I suppose so. But I'm kind of, and I I think you're right when it comes to politics in the sense that I, I don't see those kind of centrist parties having a route back. I mean, some of them are still doing okay, and Macron did okay. But uh, but as I say, I, I still think that to run the country in a kind of globalized context where you can't go on your own. You know, there's a limit to how radical you can be, as, you know, uh, President Mitterrand found out many, many, many years ago when he came in with a kind of socialism in one country agenda and had to abandon it within a couple of years. So as I say, I think we're going to live in this world where where the, the, appeal, the appeal of parties is more to our emotions and our gut instincts and there's more of a kind of niche offer. But yet somehow, after the dust has settled, whoever is in power has got to try to run the country and that ends up being a more technocratic and more centrist exercise. That'd be quite an amusing, I think, reversal of the way at least Britain has done things over the past of like few years of kind of normally like pitching to the centre and then going back to the left or to the right, depending on which party you were from. And now it might well be a case of kind of pitching to the left, pitching to the right and then drifting back to the centre. Final question. Who's going to win the Tory leadership campaign? Oh, no. I, okay. I'm no longer in the business of making predictions because I have called everything wrong um, in a long time. The 2017 election, I was wrong, but I was not as wrong as most people, which is a very long way to say I have absolutely no idea. I don't, I want to say I don't think Boris will get it, but I have no idea how much of that is my sort of like political expertise and saying that, you know, like the front runner never wins, et cetera, et cetera, or he doesn't really have a constituency among um, the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And how much of it is, I just really don't want it to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think that's the problem with predictions where, you know, I, I'd just be more likely to actually reveal myself slightly in like saying who I think will win when it's actually probably who I'd rather won. So I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, I yeah, I will put my neck out and I think, I think, I think Boris will win. It seems to me there's lots and lots of candidates. But what you basically got is you've got Boris and then you've got 10 anti-Boris candidates. And and in a way, that's a problem for Boris because everyone who's interviewed, the subtext is, I'm not Boris. And so there's a lot of anti-Boris stuff mm. because people are partly promoting themselves but partly trying to you know, stick their boot into Boris. In the end, though, I think the problem is for the Conservatives that, uh, that they have a very narrow base, you know, and in some ways it is a democratic outrage that the next prime minister will be chosen by a party with the average age of kind of 65 of, you know, overwhelmingly white elderly people in the south of England. But they kind of know they've got to find some way of reaching out beyond their base. And in the end, whatever you might think of Boris, I might think of Boris, he does reach out beyond the Conservative base. He won London twice, you know, and London is not a Conservative mm. city. So I, I I, think he will buck the trend uh, uh, of the Conservative Party that the, the favourite never wins. But, you know, mm. we will see. But I think that's why the, you know, the... the uh, original debate where I think Emily Maitlis with all the like all the potential candidates is going to be quite good because that will show I think Conservative MPs who obviously like the first kind of electoral college there who actually appeals to real people so I think you know that debate has been criticised a bit because obviously people don't get to vote afterwards I think it's quite a good idea to show you know actually who works well on telly who doesn't you know who do people like who don't people like maybe Conservative MPs will you know act rationally for once probably won't but and if Boris does win, the big question which relates to all we've been talking about in this episode is, will he, as some people say, if he wins, move a bit more to the centre, become a bit more statesperson-like, be a bit more inclusive, try to find a way in the end through Brexit, maybe even allow a second referendum with the choice being a kind of hard Brexit versus Remain? Or will he adopt the kind of populist 
in a playbook, will he, if he's in power, say, actually, you know, some of the most effective and popular leaders are the ones who've stayed populist in power, mm. and that's what I'm going to do, and there will be a hard exit, and, you know, if it's tough for Britain, that doesn't mind, because that, that doesn't matter, because that'll, be, that'll play to my kind of Churchillian instincts. So um, uh, that's something that, if he wins, we'll be discussing on a future programme. Uh, Marie, it's been fantastic to have you uh, on the programme. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Polarised. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. And we really appreciate it if you left us a rating or a review in your podcast app. Polarised was presented by me, Matthew Taylor. Thanks to my guests this week, Marie Leconte. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you by the RSA. <laughs>